To the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, gang, welcome back to yet another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Excited to be here. I should be. I'm just at my house <laughs> here in Los Angeles, California. A very lovely place, if I do say so myself. And I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, there's some elections coming up soon. Midterm elections are just just around the corner in November, apparently. That, that's what people have been telling me. So I thought this might be a good time to once again bring a liberty-leaning politician back on the show and have a little chat and try to highlight some of the great liberty candidates that are out there. And I've got one of them with me today. He is a former candidate for Virginia State Senate, as well as a former candidate for the governorship of Virginia. And he is currently running for a U.S. Senate seat out of Virginia as well, running as a libertarian. Robert Sarvis, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you. It's great to be on. Well, Robert, welcome to the show. And, you know, why don't you start off, since it's your first time speaking with us, by giving us a little bit of your background. Who exactly is Robert Sarvis and just how did you wind up in the political arena, so to speak? Sure. I'm a native of Virginia. I was born and raised in Northern Virginia, and that's where I live now. I've been a long-time small-L libertarian. I've always uh, had an interest in liberty and freedom and how it creates the conditions for a flourishing society. And I've always paid attention to public policy, never really got involved in politics, studied law, studied economics. And it was in the, I guess, the financial crisis and the Great Recession and the policy responses to those things that really motivated me to start thinking about, well, could I be a candidate, try and wed good public policy with good politics? And I just felt that our politicians, our candidates, our leaders in Washington and Richmond just didn't know what the heck they were talking about, and they were doing all the wrong things. So that's when I started looking into the possibility of running. I thought a federal race, congressional race, was too big to bite off, and I started looking at the state-level races, and I realized that there were just so many uncontested races at the state delegate and state senate level. And so I just decided I might as well run. And uh, that was in 2011, I ran for state senate. I ran as a libertarian Republican. And my takeaway from that was that the Virginia GOP is not a good vessel for liberty candidates. And I didn't really know what the future held for me until the Libertarian Party, at least in my area, had seen my campaign and were impressed by my campaign asked me to run for them. And the first time around, I said no. Then last year in 2013 was the Virginia governor's race. They asked me to run then. And quite honestly, I just looked at the other two candidates, the Republican and Democrat, and I just thought it was a tragedy if no one stepped up. So I did. And we turned a lot ahead with the support that we started getting. And it's just great the way that especially young people, but people of all ages uh, really just desperately want something different. And I think libertarians just people who believe strongly in human freedom can offer a whole lot in our electoral system. It still is a two-party system, but more and more people are growing so discontented with it that they're willing to vote outside the system. 
Now, you mentioned there that you came into politics as small L libertarian, a philosophical libertarian. So can you expand a little bit on, I guess, just what being a libertarian means to you and maybe describe a few of your early influences? Was there, you know, a book you read or, you know, a speech you heard, something like that, that first got you started thinking down that path? Well, libertarianism to me means that there's a very strong presumption that people should make the decisions for themselves in all aspects of their lives. We don't pick and choose which areas of their lives that we leave them free. And it takes a high burden of proof for anybody to force somebody to do something. There's an appropriate role for government in, in protecting people from force and fraud and things like that. You know, if you cause harm to people, there's liability for that. But in the vast majority of cases, it's, you know, people will be responsible if you give them the freedom over the decisions in their lives. And I think I became a libertarian mainly due to my college experience where I was uh, studying. I took a lot of economic classes and living on your own. I kind of developed kind of a view of don't tell me how to live my life. So I became a small L libertarian before I knew the term libertarian or the philosophy. After college, I encountered more formal libertarian thought, I suppose. Hayek, I thought the use of information in society or use of knowledge in society is just kind of fundamental to any understanding of how society works and how government interventions can go completely awry, unintended consequences, the price mechanism, the importance of that. And then, you know, Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom. By the time I read that, I read the intro and the first couple of chapters where he talks about not being able to separate political and economic freedom. I actually read that before college, and I thought that was compelling. I didn't read the rest of the book until a couple of years after college. By the time I read that, everything else seemed obvious to me. So I don't know that there's any reading that really flipped a switch. I think it was really my college experience. By the time I exited college, most everything kind of clicked for me. I think foreign policy, I, I never really became libertarian until later. I think the Iraq War certainly was a major influence there, just sort of applying the ideas of lack of knowledge, unintended consequences, the fact that effects matter more than intentions when it comes to government policy. Just applying that to foreign policy as well just made me realize that, wow, we don't know what we're doing. Oftentimes, we don't understand the, the internal dynamics of the regions and the countries that we're intervening in. We totally underestimate the costs when we do so. And we're very lacking in circumspection when it comes to the unintended consequences. And as a result, we often make things far worse than they were before. Now, you mentioned that when you first ran, you ran as a Republican, as a libertarian Republican, kind of, I guess, going through what some might call the Ron Paul strategy, the takeover, the GOP strategy. But, you know, a decent amount of the vote in that race, I believe something like 36 percent. So you, you actually did pretty well. But, um, you know, why exactly you, you describe how the GOP was just not conducive in Virginia to, I guess, a liberty candidate. Can you expand on that a little bit? Were there kind of problems that you had working within the party? Were they kind of trying to push you to the side? Or, or you know, how did that actually play out? Well, so it's both before and after I ran. I'll put it to you this way. I didn't know a lot about the Virginia GOP when I decided to run. And I just chose to run in state Senate because the GOP was trying to pick up two Senate seats in order to gain control of the state Senate. And they ended up winning those two seats. What did we get? So they had the governorship, they had the House and Senate. And what did we get? We got the largest tax increase in Virginia history, a transportation bill, which went in the wrong direction in terms of, of how we fund transportation. 
We got no change. We got no movement on school choice. We got no movement on deregulation of the economy, no changes in cronyism and the use of government to seal off industries from competition. All we got was like strident social legislation that continued to push more moderate voters out of the party and to give the GOP a, a well-deserved bad name. So it was, it's kind of like a monolithic thing where, you know, there were no more moderates in the Republican Party. And certainly libertarians are far and few in the Republican Party here in Virginia. And it's even now, as the GOP is going to lose yet another statewide race, the social conservatives really hold on to the party and don't want to see any, any movement on those issues. So, you know, it was natural for me to kind of just look for a better vehicle in which to get my message out and reach a lot of the voters that are thirsty for something, and especially young people. Young people are so underserved by our governments right now in so many ways, and they have less allegiance to the two-party system or to any one party. They're willing to look outside of the status quo, and I've been able to connect with a lot of them precisely because they are looking for something different. So, you know, I, I think... The long-term future for politics is, you know, it's a two-party system. I'm not going to predict any sort of uh, revolution that brings the Libertarian Party to dominance. Of course, I'd love that, love to see that happen. But, you know, realistically, the most likely scenario is that the Libertarian Party continues to press on the most important issues, changing public opinion, and that forces the other two parties to change. And I hope that they change, that they take seriously the ideas of liberty rather than bastardizing them, but I'm, I'm also worried that that's going to happen. So, you know, I don't know what the future holds, but we have to keep trying. We have to keep trying to spread our ideas. We have to keep, you know, explaining to people why libertarian solutions are so effective if only people would give them a chance and think deeply about the importance of freedom, both in the economic and personal spheres of their lives. So you essentially saw at the state level what a lot of us see on the national level when it comes to political debate, that essentially the Republicans were really no different than the Democrats. So do you think that not having that R or that D next to your name, do the benefits of that actually outweigh the costs of being kind of confined to that two-party system? And I know you mentioned you're kind of been able to connect with young people a lot better and that kind of thing. So is that basically what, what it came down to for you, having the freedom to really speak your mind and really just t completely reject that two-party system? Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it all depends on what my end goals are. If I, if I just wanted to be elected, if that's all I cared about, then the costs are very high of going outside the two-party system. If I care about spreading a message and winning over minds, then this absolutely is a great, a great decision on my part. You know, people just are so open to what I have to say. There are people who have some misconceptions about libertarians, and I can very quickly kind of, you know, change their mind about whether they should be open-minded to what we have to say. And as I said, the GOP has just so sullied its brand that when I ran as a Republican, they weren't willing to listen because they knew what the GOP was all about. And so I just want to talk to people and listen to them and, and have them do the same to me. And it's, it's gone really well. And it's, you know, it's really hard to get a message out statewide without money. And it's hard to raise money when you're a third party candidate, but, We've gotten some press attention. We'd love more, but we've gotten we've gotten a fair amount such that people at least know that I'm out there and they're starting to talk about this libertarian thing a little more. 
So what are some of the most common misconceptions that you get in regards to that libertarian label? What what are some of the, you know, the biggest, I guess, uh, you know, we always hear those those common tropes like, oh, just just go move to Somalia if you want to, if you're a libertarian. So what are the most common things you hear that you have to kind of rebut? Well, there's there's a few. I mean, some people have the sort of assumption that we stand for the atomistic individual who's divorced from society, mountain man type thing. And of course, that's, you know, we respect freedom precisely because we recognize that humans are social animals, that we want to engage in society, civil society. We want to engage in community. We want to help each other. We want to engage, cooperate to build things that are greater than anything we could do by ourselves. And that, you know, civil society is so much more resilient and flexible and innovative when people are left free to do what they want to do. So, that's one major one. Another one is the perennial isolationist canard. You know, we've all experienced that one. Sure, you, you want to let Hitler just, uh, you know, take over the world, that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess another would be that we just want to get rid of everything, you know, total anarchy and things like that. And I know, I know there are a fair number of anarchists within the libertarian movement. And, you know, I have nothing, no problem with anarchists, but certainly it's the case that the libertarian movement uh, is not confined to that, and that you know certainly my version of libertarianism, and certainly anything that you're going to try and put forth for the public to vote on is going to fall far short of that. And no state has a majority purist libertarian electorate, so we have to recognize that you know we're going to be representing an electorate that is not purist libertarian. We just want to move policy in the right direction, in the libertarian direction. And so I, you know confine myself to what I think is the universe of politically feasible policies, and I choose the most libertarian among them. Just to kind of delve a little bit more into your specific political philosophy, what do you view, I guess, as the proper role of government? Well, ideally, it's a protection of individual rights, and uh, you know, that's the most important thing, that if somebody harms you, there's a system for, of liability, criminal justice system. And there are some areas where, you know, you can have the government creating a, a property rights regime and other ways just to uh, help the coordination of people, large numbers of people living uh, in close proximity. They're going to have conflicts and you want to have just rules of the road, things like that. I don't know that there really needs to be a whole lot more, but if we're going to have a whole lot more, uh, it should be done in an efficient manner that respects respects people's property, that it uh, treats everybody equally. You can't use government to privilege any group above another. You can't use it to seal yourself off from competition. So, you know, making sure that there's a level playing field, that the rule of law holds. I think all of these things are the most important fundamental core government functions. And if we're going to, you know, we're going to have a lot more than what libertarians want, but libertarians can still have a really strong role to play in making sure all of that is done in an efficient manner, that it's not taken over by special interests. And, you know, libertarians are very good at kind of uh, pointing out the hypocrisies of the Republicans and Democrats when it comes to um, each of them has their own special interests and they, they fight the other side's special interests, but then when they get into power, they benefit their own special interests. So, you know, libertarians are very good about uh, being principled that we should not be selling government policy to any special interests. I think it's a really good point you make about just kind of changing the framework of the debate because you know if you look at mainstream Republicans, mainstream Democrats, 
until very recently, you'll, you might get a few talking about stuff like this, but marijuana legalization and uh, drug legalization and that kind of thing was not even a topic of debate until really until you got guys like Ron Paul and many other principled libertarians out there calling for this kind of thing. Now, while a lot of those politicians might not see electoral success in the, you know, the standard measure of the term, you know, we can look across the country and look at how just the general climate is changing. You're seeing medical marijuana legalized all over the country in you know, a majority of states. So even when when you're not maybe seeing that specific victory in a specific race, it's very clear that just simply changing the debate, as you pointed out, can really have have its benefits. Is that is that kind of one of your motivating factors as well for why you continue to run and continue to run as a libertarian then? Yeah, I think uh, it's very clear that the Libertarian Party has been on the right side of many issues for 40 years and that public opinion is starting to come around. Marijuana has one among many. It's a very salient one right now with medical marijuana and then Colorado and Washington. And you're starting to see some data coming back. It's still very early to, to make any decisive arguments, but data that shows that we, we've been right about the likely effects of ending prohibition. And then, you know, treating same-sex couples equally is another issue where the Libertarian Party has been on the right side of the issue for 40 years. That you know, if government's going to be involved in granting legal privileges based on a relationship status, then it should at least be treating same-sex couples equally. And that's something that now... You know, one of the major parties has completely come around on and, of course, is claiming all the credit. But uh, so I think that's those two issues just show when you tell people that uh, they're a little bit surprised that, oh, libertarians, you know, this is a great thing. And uh, surveillance state is another one where the, the Republicans and Democrats are complicit in building this unconstitutional spying program on American citizens, innocent Americans. And, uh, you know, the more we point that out, the more people are paying attention. Asset forfeiture, police militarization, this is starting to be something that progressives are becoming aware of. When you see it on The Daily Show or, or, you know, Comedy Central covering things like asset forfeiture reform and police militarization, that is a change in opinion that we have been talking about and spreading the word about for a long, long time. Sure, yeah. John Oliver, I think, did, a, did an amazing segment on asset forfeiture recently uh, on his show on HBO. So yeah, just just seeing this kind of stuff talked about in the mainstream in any way is, is definitely a positive sign. Now, Robert, can you tell us a little bit more uh, about the, the specifics of this race, about the politics involved? Who are your opponents and, you know, what sort of realistic chance do you have to make an impact? I don't know if you have a, a certain percentage of a target or, or maybe you think you can really compete and really and maybe even win the race. I don't know. So what is your full scope of this current race for the U.S. Senate seat? My uh, opponents are Mark Warner, the incumbent Democrat. He just, he's finishing up his first term. He is a former governor of Virginia. He's a very popular governor hasn't really done much in the Senate, and much of what he has done has been bad. I'll talk about that in a second. His opponent is Ed Gillespie, who is a longtime Washington insider, longtime Republican operative. He's an advisor in the Bush administration. He's a Republican National Committee chair. He was a lobbyist for all manner of special interests, including Enron. He's basically the definition of a GOP establishment insider, cronius, whatever you want to call it. So it's kind of a, again, it's a choice between two candidates who have nothing to offer for anybody who wants limited government and more freedom. My role in the race is to provide a better option to spread a message of freedom and to take as many votes as I can from anyone who will give me their vote. But it's not just 
I mean, I want to maximize my vote share, but we can. This race also is about an investment in Virginia politics, the future of Virginia politics. The Libertarian Party does not have major party status here. We have one of the higher thresholds of 10%. I didn't reach it last year. I got 6.5% of the vote, but 15% of the under 30 vote. I had been polling above 10% for a little while. So we're trying to reach that again. It's, it's difficult to reach, especially when you're not in a debate. I mean, I think if, if they, they excluded me from the debates last year. They did it again this year. I believe if I had gotten in the debates, I easily would have cleared the 10%, maybe much higher. We just had our third Senate debate on Monday. Of course, I wasn't in it, but a lot of people, most people who watched it just thought it was just a total joke. And it was. I watched it. It was one of the worst debates I've ever seen. And um, just talk a little bit about the incumbent, Mark Warner. He, in his time in the Senate, he has voted for every spending increase that's given us the debt that went from $11 trillion to $17 trillion in five years. He has voted for the enabling statutes, the reauthorization of the Patriot Act, and voted. he has voted against the many of the amendments that would have better protected American civil liberties and privacy. So he's, he's very much behind the surveillance state. He has not at all argued for requiring congressional authorization for our bombing in Libya, our bombing now in Iraq and Syria. He has voted to undermine the First Amendment. And, you know, I, if I bothered to think a little longer, I could probably come up with a lot more. Well, he sounds like a swell guy all around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and, and of course, cronyism and, and things like that. I mean, he voted, he introduced the bill to reauthorize the Export-Import Bank and is solidly behind that whole program. And he's one of the biggest exemplars of crony capitalism and corporate welfare in Virginia. I mean, the amount of money he's gotten from, you know, Dominion, the power company here, then signing legislation as governor to allow Dominion the ability to trespass on people's properties to survey for pipelines and, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's not a friend of liberty at all. And he's not a friend of progressives either who care about civil liberties and things like that. You know, Ed Gillespie, I mentioned how much he's tied into the establishment Republicans and the George Bush administration. So all the stuff that George W. Bush did was championed by Gillespie. So when it comes to policy, when it comes to cronyism when it comes to civil liberties. Uh, it's just kind of, who can you vote for if you want to vote within a two-party system? There's just no one to vote for. So that's why I'm running. You mentioned cronyism there, and you put a big emphasis on that in your campaign. I noticed that just, just looking through your website, looking through all the issues, it's, it's something you come back to a lot. So can you touch on real quick, just for people that might not really even be familiar with the term, what exactly is cronyism and how, if you were elected to Senate, how could you actually you know, take steps to actually curtail cronyism, crony capitalism, that kind of thing? So cronyism is essentially any time a business or an industry uses government policy to benefit themselves. It's essentially using government policy either to get a subsidy, a taxpayer-funded subsidy, or to get a regulation or law that closes off a market to competition, or in any way privileges a certain group that's competing, that ought to be competing in an open and competitive marketplace. So, uh, you know, a lot of the tax credits or deductions in our tax code have been lobbied for by industry to either get direct subsidies to themselves or to create incentives for people to buy their products. There's a whole host of ways of doing it, not just through legislation, but through the rulemaking in the bureaucracies, administrative rulemaking process. 
And, you know, companies spend a lot of money lobbying unelected bureaucrats, and there's no democratic accountability whatsoever there. And it's a real problem. So what would I do? I think one thing to do is to try and dial back on the amount of delegation of legislative powers to the administrative agencies so that the lobbying, so that companies aren't trying to get to lobby the bureaucrats. Everything has to pass through Congress before it goes into law, before it becomes a law that is enforceable against people's private behavior. That can change the nature of cronyism. I would also, you know, simplifying the tax code and the regulatory code, getting rid of all of these instances of using policy to benefit particular industries, that would be helpful. And one of the reasons you can't get it is because the Republicans say, we want to get rid of these deductions, these special treatment provisions. And the Democrats say, no, that's, you know, we want to get rid of these other ones. They're, They're doing the bidding of their own special interests. But the only way to get rid of all of them is to get rid of all of them. The only way to get any one industry on board with giving up their own special provisions is to be willing to get rid of all of the special provisions. Um, the only way to do that is just, is just tax reform, regulatory reform, and getting rid of legislative delegation. Robert, just perusing through your website, I noticed one part in the environmental policy section. It states that you uh, would plan to protect the environment through strict liability rules, market-based mechanisms, and innovation prizes. Can you expand on just what you mean by innovation prizes? I think that might be something that might stand out to some libertarians as, you know, sounding just on the surface, at least, as some kind of, like, government-type scheme, as opposed to, you know, most people would think, well, you know, the market will reward whoever innovates. So what exactly do you mean by that? Well, so... um is generally that if the government is going to be involved in basic science research or, or anything, if we're going to be spending money, instead of the government trying to pick and choose whom to fund, uh, it would be a much better system to have a prize where anybody can compete. And you know, it'd be, it, would be, it would be nice to see it done privately. And if you actually, I think there, there would be such things, more of such things. I, there already were the Ansari X Prize and things like that. But certainly, if the government's going to be spending money, it should be in this type of model. I think it's cheaper to do, and it opens it up to anybody. You know, right now, we have a lot of direct subsidies to particular industries and even particular companies. You know, government is not a private equity firm. Uh, it does not have the wherewithal to make good decisions about how to invest money. So, you know, it's just kind of how can we best reform these things so that we're not wasting money and we're not sort of uh, allowing taxpayer dollars to be moved around based on political preferences rather than sort of some sort of economics. I, th- I think the best route is market-based mechanisms, which we've used in the past to get, you know, through property rights, you can get people protecting the environment through, if you make sure that prices price in the costs of pollution, then you can let the, the marketplace take over and the people who can avoid pollution at least cost will do so. So it's all part of that paradigm that, A, we should make sure that the government is focused on things like property rights and liability for people who are polluting. B, where those don't exist, we should make sure they do exist, uh, and then and then let the market mechanism take over. And C, if we're going to be spending money directly, it should be done in a manner that is not uh, politicized and sort of government picking and choosing. 
So you're really just viewing that as sort of uh, an alternative working within the current system. You know, the fact that they're not getting out of these industries anytime soon. They're not going to stop spending money anytime soon. So just if they're going to do it, that would just be, you know, rewarding the market would be a better way than kind of the, the direct subsidies, the direct cronyism and that kind of thing. Right. And also, I think, you know, there are there are arguments from libertarians that there are certain areas of public, like basic science research as a public good. Whether you subscribe to that or not, that's fine. But, um, you know, certainly it's the case that a lot of the scientific research is, you know, the way that the money is allocated is questionable. So there are a lot of problems with that. But, uh, you know, there are libertarians who will say that, you know, that's an area that you wouldn't want to cut in, you know, that would have to be a lower priority in terms of cutting government. Robert, I want to just give you a chance before we wrap up here to just kind of give a final message to anyone out there who might be listening. It'll be pretty close to the election by the time this airs. So, you know, why don't you just give a quick little elevator speech? If you run into a, a random Virginian in an elevator and you got 90 seconds, what is your you know final pitch to get them to go to the polls and support Robert Sarvis? Well, I think the most obvious thing that we all agree on, Republican, Democrat, and people outside the two-party system, is that Washington is broken. It's dysfunctional. Bipartisanship. And the two-party system has gotten us the $17 trillion debt, perpetual war in the Middle East, 50 years of a failed drug war, the highest incarceration rate in the world, a mass surveillance state that violates civil liberties in the Constitution. So what do we do about that? The only way you can change the major parties, the only way you can change the two-party system is to vote outside of it. Voting for me not just sends a message to Washington and the two parties that they have to put the public interest back at the heart of public policy, but it's also an investment in the future of Virginia politics. Any result from the over 10% gets the Libertarian Party major party status. And that's important because 40 to 50% of House of Delegate and State Senate seats go uncontested most election cycles, which means that we can get Libertarians in two-way races all across the state, and that can change the face of Virginia politics. That can change our state politics for the better, and it can have a huge influence on what the other two parties are doing as well. So I hope any Virginians listening out there will go out on November 4th and vote for Robert Sarvis, as well as any of the seven House candidates that we have, congressional candidates, we have seven out of the 11 House districts. We have two libertarians you can vote for. So I, I hope everybody votes libertarian, and I will continue in politics to help build the party and recruit great libertarian candidates all throughout the state. And how can people get in touch with yourself or with your campaign if they want to you know, jump in and lend you a helping hand or just really get involved in what you're doing, trying to build the Libertarian Party in Virginia? The best way is to check out the website, www.robertsarvice.com, and send us an email at info at robertsarvice.com. Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really do appreciate you taking out your time, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Take care, Robert. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash meetronpaul. As Ron Paul has said, 
There can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the Liberty Movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. Set Money Free. With a special forward by Ron Paul. Set Money Free. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Set Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Chris Rossini's Set Money Money free. Set money free. Set money free. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, guys, welcome back, and I really hope you enjoyed my little talk there, Mr. Robert Sarvis. Now, a lot of libertarians out there have a lot of different views about how libertarians should approach politics. Some people think you got to stick to this Ron Paul GOP strategy. And we've had a few candidates, a few guests on the show that have done just that. Murray Sabrin, Derek Grayson, T-Mod, some great guys we've interviewed. Unfortunately, those gentlemen did not make it far. They did not make it past the Republican primary in their respective races. But there are still a number of liberty candidates out there, as you know. Robert Sarvis, who I spoke with today, as well as Tisha Cassida in Colorado, running as an independent. There are a lot of different ways people can run for office. You know, you can run as an independent. You can run as a Republican. You can run as a Libertarian, as Mr. Sarvis is. There are many ways to spread the ideas and connect with people, and it might be really just based on the political situation that you are in, in your local area, wherever you might be thinking of running. Or it might be more based on your own philosophy. You know, a lot of anarchists out there, anyway... They would say we should just reject politics altogether, not be involved. If you vote, you're just legitimizing the system. If you campaign for a candidate, you're legitimizing the system. And there's some elements of truth to that because the system is coercive. You know, it is this system of democracy where everyone just votes on whatever they want. And I guess the minority has to just sit back and take it. You know, it's not a good system of government. It's not a proper way to respect the rights of individuals. It's not the kind of government libertarians and liberty-leaning folks should really wish for and push for. If we're going to have government, it should be something based on, as Mr. Sarvis pointed out, if you're going to have a government, its role should be that of protecting individual rights. Of course, nowadays... Government largely is engaged in violating individual rights, in taking from others, in taking from the property of others that did not consent to us, in creating man-made laws and applying them to everybody by throwing people in jail for possessing a plant. This is not remotely close to what the founding fathers of this nation and what really what any reasonable liberty-minded person would view as a proper conception of government. That being said, 
There are many ways to spread the message of liberty, and one way to do that is certainly through politics. I mean, how many people did Ron Paul get interested in the ideas of liberty just by running for president twice, never winning a primary, never getting to the presidency, but he arguably awakened more people to these ideas and broke more minds out of the left-right paradigm than any politician maybe in history. So there are many ways to go about this, and Robert Sarvis, he tried the Ron Paul method, he tried the working within the GOP thing, and that just was not going to work out for him in Virginia, so I fully respect and support his choice to try to build a third alternative to this two-party system. I think, you know, we may have philosophical disagreements on certain things here and there, but overall, I think one of the most important things we can do is try to get people to break out of that left-right paradigm. It's like step one if we're going to make any progress when it comes to liberty. You know, you can't even have a conversation with somebody if they're still trapped in this Democrats good and Republicans bad mentality. We need to encourage rational dialogue based on principles, based on reason, not based on the whims of the day. And, you know, whatever people just dream up in their minds that they want the government to do. Well, that's not how it works, because that's what results in the violation of so many individual rights. That's why we see so many people jailed for victimist crimes. You know, that's the kind of stuff I got involved in the liberty movement to fight against, seeing all the injustices in the world. So, you know, I'm not going to be the final arbiter of how somebody should approach the method of doing that. For me, it's starting this podcast. It's joining up with some good friends of mine and starting lionsofliberty.com, finding other ways to reach out to people and really spread that message. And that's what I encourage you guys to do as well. I encourage you to get involved with us and join the conversation. Come on over to our social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. Find us over on the Twitter, at lionsofliberty. Find us on Google+. Plus. Man, I think Brian might have even made a Tumblr page for us. I don't know. We're all over the place, all right? So just connect with us in in whatever ways you can. You can listen to this show on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on the Liberty Radio Network, LRN.FM, at Grassroots Revolution Radio, Daily Paul Radio, which are both in the process of merging to Truth Be Told Radio. Any of those sites will get you to listen to this show, which you can hear on the weekends at 6 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. You can hear Rear's Alliance of Liberty podcast on those networks. So there is really, if you like the show, there's no excuse. We have a plethora of ways you can come listen to the show. And of course, the other way is to come to LionsOfLiberty.com every single Thursday when we have a brand new episode posted so you can be the first ones to hear it. Just head right over to our site. Most importantly, whatever methods you choose to communicate with us, whatever methods you choose to communicate with others, all I'm going to ask you to do is to live long! And... Ah, live free, come on. Peace.